0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: This is the sound of Indonesia's next president dancing across the stage. The man is Prabowo Subianto, a former military general who, in his third attempt at Indonesia's top office, won an overwhelming majority of the votes, according to unofficial but historically accurate quick count results. Proboo led his nearest rival by some 33 percentage points after more than 200 million registered voters cast their ballots in the hotly contested race. The 72-year-old beat out rivals Anis Baswedan and Pranowo, both former governors, thanks in no small part to a slick campaign that successfully shifted Proboo's brand from iron-fisted populace to a cute grandpa prone to posting viral dances on TikTok. How did Prabowo, a man who was once a bitter rival of outgoing President Joko Widodo, end up mounting a successful 2024 bid with not only President Jokowi's backing, but also the president's own son, Gibran Rakabuming Raka, as his running mate? And what did voters think about some of the darker chapters in Prabowo's past? Prabowo was accused of major human rights abuses, including overseeing the abduction of democracy activists, accusations that led to a US travel ban. Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. Jackie Baker, a longtime expert in Indonesian politics and a senior fellow at the Indo-Pacific Research Center at Australia's Murdoch University. I'm Inan and this is About Asia. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Baker. So it was an enormous vote. Indonesia is not only the largest democracy in Southeast Asia, it's the third largest democracy in the world. For our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with Indonesian politics, who is Prabowo Subianto?
0: Prabowo Subianto is a blue blood who comes from a very well-established political family who have very sizable economic fortune. He went into the military. He eventually became the head of the Special Forces and the Jakarta Special Command, two incredibly important positions within the military at a time in which the military was the most powerful institution in the country. In the meantime he also married the dictator Suharto's daughter. So you know this is a man who was in, for all intents and purposes is on track to be a potential successor to President Suharto. Come 1998 however his plans are thwarted by a democratic revolution. <laughs> And so then he works, moves into electoral politics, and he runs for president against Jokowi Widodo in 2014 and 2019 in polarizing campaigns, in which he faces off a very centrist developmentalist candidate with a persona of authoritarian nationalism. I am disgusted of you know this hyper populism. I am what in which he's roaring down the microphone that, you know, that foreigners are trying to take over our country. So he ran very, very polarising campaigns. He allied himself with some of the darker forces, I guess, of of Indonesia's democracy, and in the last five years, a reconciliation, a remarkable reconciliation, has occurred between Joko Widodo and Prabowo Subianto, such that he has been sitting as defence minister, running back in his old turf of the military. So, Prabowo has been around a very long time. I believe that Prabowo is a person who believes he's entitled to the presidency, who believes he's born into the presidency, and finally, after a very long, many decades struggle. He He has now won it.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people were surprised at how well Perboa did and how different his campaign this year was from previous campaigns. Um, I mean, he's this former special forces uh, commander, sort of rebranded himself into this cuddly grandfather figure who's doing uh, viral TikTok videos with his awkward dance moves. He's been given the nickname, the TikTok general. Young Indonesians
0: see Prabowo as someone cute.
1: How did that uh, rebranding sort of take place? You know, how how was he able to get uh, across this new version of himself to voters? And how successful was it?
0: I think it was incredibly successful. I think, if anything, this campaign has seen the reinvention of Prabowo Subianto as, you know, Indonesia's cuddly uncle. Uh, Chubby cheeks, um, you know, chubby belly, happy man who is going to continue the legacy of Jokowi. And this is a polar opposite from the Prabowo that we've seen in previous campaigns. A big part of his rebranding was this image of what's known as Gamoy, which is kind of Cute. Bye bye. Good and so actually, instead of images of Prabowo, we saw a lot of kind of animated images of Prabowo and his running mate Gibran, so there was kind of cartoonish avatars of Prabowo hanging all around um, the country as part of their presidential campaign. He presented himself as the heir of Jokowi, as the obvious continuation of the Jokowi regime. And if there was a policy platform, it was simply continue what Jokowi's been up to. And I think his campaign managers were very careful to steer him away from presenting a serious policy platform, as he has done in the previous campaigns. Uh, it was incredibly successful. And it was successful, particularly amongst certain age groups. So the sort of Gen Z were stumping for probo in figures of up to 70%. It's worth remembering that younger voters or voters under 25 and voters between sort of 18 and 35 really like Prabowo. In previous campaigns, they were also the basis of his electoral support. This year, he had attracted both this massive swath of the youth vote, but also he was the leading campaign in every age group, though to quite small margins for older people.
1: So, you know, he managed this cuddly grandpa rebranding, but as a lot of us know about Prabowo's history has quite a a checkered past, especially when it comes to his time in the military. You know, he's been uh, accused of kidnapping student activists and committing uh, military crimes in East Timor, which got him banned from uh, the U.S. until he was uh, made defense minister lately. How much of an issue were Prabowo's past human rights violations in this campaign, if at all?
0: It's important to remember that prabo has campaigned before so 2019 and 2014 these were big issues these were prosecuted over and over again and I think in both of those campaigns when you paired those, accusations alongside an authoritarian personality for some, obviously for some portion of the population, it's stuck and they were not comfortable with it. But the attempt to raise Parole's human rights record was done again this by his opponents in this campaign. And it really just didn't sit well. It's like nobody really cared, especially when you were being faced with, you know cuddly granddad doing a TikTok dance. It just didn't stick at all. And I think if anything, it felt like a tired refrain against a Prabowo presidency. So the opposition against Prabowo mobilized, I think, around a trope of an older Prabowo that we were familiar with, but newer voters either didn't care or didn't know that older Prabowo. And so accusations against him just didn't stick and just didn't seem realistic.
1: So Prabowo was this fierce, bitter rival against Joko Widodo in uh, the two previous campaigns. He is actually uh, a tool of the oligarchs, and uh, I I don't think uh, that's the correct picture. He's not a man of the people. He claims to be humble, but that's just an act. In my opinion, that's just an act. I I just want to
0: ask you you one final question, uh, sir. What... Will you do if you don't win? What?
1: what? I'm, I'm very confident I win. But somehow he has allied himself with Joko Wee, and Joko Wee's son is his uh, vice presidential uh, running mate, or now VP-elect, I guess. So how did this happen? How did they go from being these bitter rivals into these close political allies?
0: Well, this is the multi-dollar Multi-million dollar question. (laughs) Uh, That said, it's worth remembering that despite these very bitter campaigns that were run in 2014 and 2019, Jokowi did many times either prior to the campaign or after the campaign, extend an olive branch to to Prabowo to bring him on board, to bring him into the coalition. And in 2019, this olive branch approach finally worked and Prabowo joined the government's coalition. So imagine the kind of head of the opposition ultimately defects and joins the government. And he does so with the plump prize of the ministerial position for defence. And over the last five years, Prabowo has been very quiet, very professional. Yes, Jokowi, no Jokowi. So in some ways, his rebranding has started since 2019. Nonetheless, it was on nobody's bingo card that Jokowi and Prabowo would be allied for the 2024 election. And it started to occur in part because Jokowi's always had this fractious relationship with his own nominating party, the Democratic Party of struggle. And in part, that's with Megawati, the head of this party, another dynastic leader who is trying to shore up her reign through this young, sort of energetic governor. And they have had a lot of spats throughout two terms of government And when it appeared that the PDIP or the Democratic Party of Struggle would be nominating a candidate and controlling that candidate and that Jokowi would be sidelined in that coalition in 2024, Jokowi started to, to, I guess, canvass the field for an heir to his legacy, to shore up his own power moving into 2024 at a time when he himself could no longer run for the presidency.
1: So, yeah, um, I'm wondering if how much Prabowo's win can be also considered a referendum on Joko Widodo's term in office and how successful he was, given how closely they've aligned himself. What does Prabowo's victory mean in terms of Joko Wee's own uh, success and legacy?
0: After the pandemic, we saw Joko popularity rankings start to really soar to levels, in fact, that we'd not. Seen before, at sort of between hovering between 70 and 80 percent. And in many ways, this occurred because he invested heavily in social welfare programs as it happened during the pandemic across the world. But Jokowi continued with many of those social welfare programs. And he played a very interventionist role in controlling inflation at the national and the regional levels. And so Indonesia experienced something of an economic bounce. You know, it saw good growth rates of sort of 5.5% in the wake of the pandemic. And from this point, Jokowi's popularity rankings become really stratospheric. And this gives Jokowi a kind of cache of voters that the endorsement of Jokowi on any presidential candidate will see them sail into the palace. So Jokowi becomes an incredibly important kingmaker throughout this electoral contestation. And he starts to throw, in fact, all of the resources and authorities of the state and of him as president towards this campaign, towards ensuring that his legacy will be continued through a new presidential candidate. You know, he truly believes that only he has a vision for Indonesia becoming a developed nation and he calls it a must Indonesia. So golden Indonesia in, in 2045, Indonesia will be a developed country. And so he truly believes and he has his entire government apparatus, you know, working towards this vision and he wants to see this vision realised.
1: So Jokowi obviously made a pretty big gamble on Proboa that he would continue his policies, continue his legacies. But what do you think? Do you think Proboo actually will uh, maintain uh, Jokowi's agenda or will he go off on uh, his own own path?
0: That's a great question. And I think that Prabowo has seen that being a centrist, carrying on with the Jokowi legacy actually wins him a lot of popularity. And if he wants to win 2029, as often people start talking about the day after the 2024 election, you know, he'll be he'll be doing so with, with that in mind. I think personally, we've seen Prabowo it's a very mixed record. In some ways on stump issues like uh, the relationship with foreigners taking natural resources, Prabowo has been very happy to be quiet about those issues when it has served him. So Prabowo is only, I think, weakly or at least very pragmatically aligned with his old Prabowo persona of, uh, you know, uh, nationalization of the state and don't allow foreign interests to come in and beware of foreigners they're taking over. I, you know, I think Prabowo perhaps is willing to be very pragmatic on that point, but there are certain areas where he thinks he knows a lot better and he is willing to put forward his position on that. And so we will be, I guess we will observe what those platforms and policies will be in the coming years. I do think one area that he is going to change considerably is decentralized democracy. I think we will see that being, I think there is a broad compact around winding back uh, direct elections at the regional level. And that comes from not just Garindra, who first floated that in the 2014 election, but they have been successful in convincing the other parties at the national level that this is in their interests. And I think that we will, if Prabowo moves, I think we will see his moves in that area quite quickly. So, uh, I
1: want to take a little step back here into the the larger context of sort of where Indonesian democracy. Uh, is right now. And uh, specifically, uh, you discussed this idea a lot in a recent academic article titled uh, Reformasi Reversal, of uh, Reformasi, of course, meaning uh, the reform movement, which was really a driving force behind Indonesia's shift to democracy in the late 90s. So why do you think Reformasi is over?
0: Okay, my argument is that the, the kind of the social groups, the forces that came together to make democracy happen in Indonesia. They have been so systematically sidelined, co-opted, coerced and kneecapped that they are no longer a politically salient force. They are no longer a force that to which the parties need to make a nod to or concessions to or compromises with. I think they have been thoroughly broken by the last two terms of government under the Jokowi presidency. But it's, you know, it's worth saying that the decline probably began well before then, what has been so remarkable under the Jokowi presidency has been the direct targeting of all the kind of the really key wins of reformasi, like uh, human rights, like Indonesia's decentralized democracy. So the idea that you can vote in your own governors and regents and mayors. This is something that Indonesians really cherish and celebrate. We have, even at the local level, we still see turnouts of somewhere around sixty percent, which is you know amazing if you're in the US or the UK. So Indonesians cherish their decentralized democracy. And yet over the last two terms, we are starting to see a coalition of parties test the waters for getting rid of decentralized democracy. The constitutional court has also gone from being a defender of law reform and human rights and a place that activists would take cases in order for them to be fairly heard. And it's gone to being a handmaiden to the government And in particular, its most scandalous decision was the kind of legal uh, wrangling around changing the electoral laws in order to allow for Jokowi's son to run as vice president. The Constitutional Court, which is headed up by Jokowi's own brother-in-law, ultimately decided in a decision that was later found to be completely irregular and filled with all sorts of anomalies. They decided that if you had run or been a local leader at some point, people under 40, I believe it is, could run for vice presidency, where before it was only people over 40 could run for the presidency or the vice presidency. So the constitutional court effectively paved the way for this Chokowi dynasty, which has been very successful. So we've seen, you know, so decentralized democracy, the anti-corruption commission, the constitutional court, uh, human Rights Agenda, the Electoral Commission. I mean, I could go on and on and on. The big wins of reformasi, the institutions that were produced out of reformasi, have all been harnessed to the political will of government.
1: And it's, I think surprising uh, in a lot of ways that this all happened under Joko Widodo's administration because he originally came in, you know, being seen as a new hope for Indonesia and that he didn't have all these ties to like the political and military elites. So how much of a lasting impact will his administration uh, and the actions that he's taken, as you referred to, uh, have in terms of the long term impact on Indonesian democracy?
0: I mean, it's worth noting that the biggest falls in Indonesia's quality of democracy is mapped by those big indices like Freedom House, um, The Economist runs a democracy index and so forth. These, the biggest falls happened under a Jokowi government, under the two terms of the Jokowi government. Many people say, you know, this is this great paradox. How could a, a civilian that whose political career was effectively born by the winds of the Reformasi movement, how could he bring democracy to its knees? Why would we see that under a person who presumably was going to protect democracy? But I think the comparative politics tells us that it's often the new civilian leadership that ends up relying on old, dark elite forces to prop up their regimes. You know, often it's the, it's the new civilian president that brings the military back in. Jokowi is also regarded as an extremely pragmatic and instrumentalist individual. And, and you know, I think while he showed himself in 2014 as this human rights loving civil society generated sort of decentralized democracy, sort of deeply in support of ideas of social democracy. I mean, that persona fell away pretty quickly in the first six months. So I think Jacobi was only ever very weakly committed to democracy. I mean, the character of Jacobi is better distilled by his background as a furniture seller back in Solo under the new order. And if you are trying to enter the private sector in a country that is dominated by the economic interests of the military and oligarchs, you know, you learn to make some pretty uncomfortable compromises and live with that. So I think that better characterizes Jokowi, a man who's very comfortable with living with uncomfortable alliances and will do so in service of his own political interests.
1: That was Dr. Jackie Baker. For more from her, check out her podcast, Talking Indonesia, And for more news and analysis on the Indonesian election, read the South China Morning Post at scmp.com.